understand you and come to be changed by you. And so we pray, Lord, for an abundance of your Spirit. Uh, You tell us that if we need more of your Spirit, to simply ask for more, and you, as our good Father, will give it. And so we need your Spirit to give us ears to hear, minds able to understand, hearts ready to receive uh, this, your Word. And we pray that you would speak loudly to us through it. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you will open your uh, Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Admittedly, as uh, I gave all of my sermon information to the church office this week, I had all intentions on preaching uh, through verse 8. But have you ever ever bit off a little bit more than you could chew at the dinner table? Um, And and you realize that was a lot more work uh, than you needed it to be? Um, that was my experience uh, sitting in a coffee shop in uh, Rockingham, North Carolina this week. Uh, I started dissecting and I, I said, well, you know what? I can get a sermon out of 1 through 3, actually 1 through 3a. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to read all 12 verses, this whole section for the next number of weeks. Uh, and then... Uh, in parts, we're going to exposit this section, verses 1 through 12, uh, together. But tonight, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3a. That will be the, the, you know, the focus of our sermon, but we're going to read again verses 1 through 12. And so here now, uh, the Word of God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that instructions, or for you know what instructions, sorry, we gave uh, you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, here is the hinge of this letter to the Thessalonian church. If you know anything about the writings of the Apostle Paul, you know oftentimes in many of his letters there's a hinge in which the the letter seems to turn. Uh, Oftentimes in the letters of Paul, he gives us an exposition of doctrine or even expositions of Old Testament texts, and then on the latter half of the letter, he begins to apply that to the daily Christian life. Well, 1 Thessalonians is a little different uh, in its content, but not different in its hinge. Up until this point, 
Paul has been writing a letter of, of affirmation, of encouragement. And now he turns on to a new section of instruction, application, exhortation that's indicated to us by this word finally, or might uh, be translated in your Bibles as moreover or furthermore. Here's the hinge. We're moving from affirmation and encouragement to now what corrections are necessary. And actually, you might even say that it's not correction that Paul is is addressing here, but this idea of progressive sanctification on this side of glory that prepares you for life everlasting. He tells the people in Thessalonica repeatedly, even in these 12 verses, that they have done well in obeying the commandments of God, and yet they are to do it more and more. You see it there at the end of verse 1. And it reminds me something of like a football coach. Uh, You know, it's no secret to all of you here that for many years I I coached the JV team of Dillon Christian School, the middle school team there at Dillon Christian School. And, And how foolish would it be for us to win a game on Thursday night and for me to say in the huddle after the game, listen, you, you did okay. There were some things we messed up. There were some plays you ran wrong. But we won. Therefore, no practice next week. How would that set us up for the next game, next Thursday? Well, it wouldn't set us up well or faithfully at all, would it? Everybody would clearly say, you're a bad coach. That's not a good move. In the same way, Paul affirms and encourages the Thessalonian believers, you have done this well, and yet you can do it more and more. In fact, he tells us there in verse 1 that they have walked well in the sight of God. They have actually pleased God by what they are doing, and yet there is an, an exhortation, if you will, an urging of them to walk more and more pleasing to the Lord. It's this idea of progressive sanctification that we're always growing uh, in the likeness of Christ. We are always walking closer and closer uh, to our God. Well, that's where uh, the rest of our time in, in 1 Thessalonians is going to point us. This idea of progressive sanctification, doing more and more good works for the advancement of God's kingdom and the preparation for His second coming. But you see here in these three verses, 1 through 3a, He is beginning to establish for us this idea that's going to come in verse 13. The second coming of the Lord. In fact, in all 12 verses here that we just read together, he begins to repeat some teaching that he has already highlighted for them before. He's going to begin talking about sexual purity in the latter half of verse 3 all the way through verse 8. He's going to talk about brotherly love in verses 9 and 10. And then he's also going to tell us something about this diligence in work. Uh, this, this idea of how the Christian ought to work in verses 11 and 12. And then he's going to apply the gospel to say all of this matters 
when it comes to the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. This coming again of the Lord. In fact, if you were to look in your Greek Bibles, uh, Greek New Testaments, there is no break between 12 and 13. Those subtitles, those breaks in the text are, are given to you uh, by scholars who do well to put them there so that we have some sort of, of, of mind uh, ability to, to comprehend all that, is, all that is happening within these letters. But if we were to take verse 12 and then move right into verse 13, it's a message that, that cannot be missed. There is an intimate connection between these two ideas in this chapter. There is Christian living to be pleasing to the Lord right now, but also that prepares us for the end times or for what we might call eschatology, the study of the end times. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying that eschatology is to be taught, is to be understood as as practical and life-impacting in the here and the now. Here's what Hendrickson, uh, a great commentator of the New Testament, this is what he says about this chapter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wanted his readers to have a healthy outlook upon life so that in meditating upon events on the other side of death, they would not forget about their duties on this side of death. He wanted them to set their house in order with a view to the earnestly awaited coming of the glorious visitor from the other side, even the Lord Jesus. And so you think about these exhortations in which Paul is about to establish here for us in this chapter. And it's saying, you do these things more and more in the here and the now so that you might be found ready. You might be found ready for Christ's second coming. And so if you'll keep your finger there in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians and flip over with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. This is a well-known mini-parable, if you will, from Jesus. And here it is that He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And He talks about this idea of being ready, even, for the coming of the Son of Man. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read to you verses 29-51. through If you don't have your Bibles open, you can simply listen Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not not, uh, let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at that hour, he does not know. And he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So you you understand the message in which Jesus is declaring these words in verses 29 through 51 of Matthew chapter 24. There will be signs of the end times. There will be great tribulation in those days in which we are living even now. There will be signs of the Son of Man coming. And even so, you might say that Jesus Himself is at the very gates, at the very threshold, waiting for the Father to say, go and get my children. And and then He begins telling parable after parable, illustration after illustration of how there will be some who are found ready and some who are found wanting. And, and, And it's probably the clearest there in verses 45 through 51 as you compare the two servants. Surely the foolish servant, the wicked servant, says to himself, my master is delayed. Jesus won't return now. Therefore, he lives like the world, and in his sins he is judged. And he will be thrown into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a common way in the Scriptures to talk about hell. But you see, the wise servant... The one who does as the Master has commanded, and so doing, when He comes, that servant is blessed. And in verse 47 it says, Truly I say to you, this servant will receive the reward of his inheritance. He will place him over all his possessions. Which of course is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. As those who are found ready will be placed in the seat of honor and power in authority with Christ Jesus Himself. And, and so Paul is establishing back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that a life pleasing to God is the way that we are to be found ready. And if we are to be found ready, we will be growing up in Christ's likeness. Not only will we be doing just enough to get by, but we will be increasing in the ways that we want to live a life 
to please God, increasing in the ways that we walk with God. But before we can even get to these exhortations uh, that are before us in verses 1 through 12, in verses 1 through 3a, we have these exhortations that are being established. And I want to not focus on the content of those exhortations tonight, but I want us to focus on the, the nature of these exhortations. The nature of these exhortations. Because you see that these exhortations are, are given with, with a, a brotherly care. Or maybe you, you might say a, a tenderness or a gentleness in which Paul urges the Thessalonian believers to walk in a manner worthy of Christ more and more. And we know that simply because he calls the people here in this church brothers. Some translations will rightly say brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a term of endearment written to the entire visible church there in Thessalonica. And, and why does he call them brothers? Why does he call them brothers? Because he understands that this church and himself are family within the household of God. That is just as we pray. There's no, no, no slave nor free, no male nor female. There's no race rankings or socioeconomic rankings within the household of God, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the whole point of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And at the same time, he is putting them on an equal ground with himself as a sinner. So not only is he saying that Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, not only are all we together as the family of God, but we are on an equal playing field as sinners adopted into the family of God. And so right off the bat, he begins to speak with a tenderness or a gentleness. He begins to, to, to urge them to to exhort them, if you will, as an elder brother. He, he speaks with authority, yes, we'll see that here in just a few moments, but, but how he speaks is, is actually very, as, as Hendrickson says, very friendly and polite. He, he speaks with much care in his heart. He's already told us, hasn't he, that, that his ministry amongst them has been motherly and fatherly. That as a, as a mother nurses their children, so, so we have done ministry here amongst you. We have loved you. We have had adoration for you. So much so that we haven't even charged you anything. So that we might not be a financial burden to you as a young church. But we've, remember, made tents all night so that we can preach the gospel of God by day. And that same affection for these believers here in Thessalonica is, is pouring out of Paul's heart. He sees them as equals within the household of God. They're sinners that have been justified and adopted into the family of the Heavenly Father. And they are brothers and sisters within the household of God as Christ is their elder brother. They are all on this same standing, if you will. The gospel has broken down all the divides, and so Paul calls them brothers. And also he urges them. You see that too, don't you? Brothers, we 
ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Puritans would say, here it is that that Paul is wooing. Paul is wooing the Thessalonian believers. We don't use that terminology very often, do we? But, But we know something about wooing. It's this positive encouragement, if you will. It's using a real affirmation to to draw out more and and more. That's the whole message that Paul is preaching. To to live a life that's more pleasing to God more and more. And he's doing so by being very, very affirmative in his words. Very gentle in his exhortations. You might would say that, that Paul is walking alongside of them. Why does he do that? Because he is one of them. You know, here it is that, that something about the, the household of God is being established before us here. That yes, there will be those who are given authority within the church. Yes, there will be those who are given submissive roles in the life of the church. Some will be more gifted in some circumstances and seasons and talents over the others. And yet, we all need each other to come alongside of one another so that we might urge or woo ourselves to follow the Lord Jesus, to walk with Him more and more. And so a life pleasing to God starts in a very corporate level. And... and in a corporate level or in a corporate body like the church, we have to understand that there are exhortations to be given. I think that's very clear here. As we are wooing each other to follow the Lord Jesus more and more, there will be seasons of life for individual believers that we need someone to come alongside of us and and push us along. You know, one of the things that the Apostle Paul's doing, he is using his position within the life of the church. He's using his God-given position within the life of the church in Thessalonica to say, you are doing a great job in living a life that is pleasing to God, yet we need more. Yet we need more. And that's that exhortation nature. Yes, it's gentle. Yes, it's tender. Yes, Paul puts himself on the same playing field, but but humbly he comes and he says, here is a way that I'm going to exhort you. Here's a way that I'm going to call you to live a life that's more pleasing to God, to walk closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that really causes us to ask a question. As we come alongside of one another in the household of faith, are we ready to receive such, such exhortation? You know, oftentimes, exhortations, especially from our godly brothers and sisters, comes with, comes with a lot of attitude, if we just, be, if we just are honest about it. We, we don't like it. And, and in fact, we would say very quickly, What does he have to say to me? He's a sinner just like I am. Paul isn't disputing that. He's actually saying, I'm a brother alongside of you. I'm a member of the visible body, but yet it is my position of authority uh, within the life of the church that I am supposed to exhort you, to, to push you 
to a life of holiness. And, and of course, in, in the modern context, especially in the Presbyterian church, we know that that position of authority and exhortation is given to the elders of the church. And so are we ready to humbly receive exhortation from the elders of, your, of the church? In fact, when you take membership vows, you say that you are ready. And yet, how often does our heart feel, be filled with bitterness when the, when the elders do such of a thing? We, we need to understand that being a part of the household of God is to receive exhortation. Being a part of the household of God is saying that I need, uh, I need the, the fathers of the church my fellow brothers in the Lord to come alongside of me and push me to more and more holiness. It shows that I belong here. It's just like correction from the Lord Jesus. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, that we should not despise, we should not despise the correction of the Lord or the discipline of the Lord. For what parent does not discipline a child, but being disciplined by the Lord speaks to the fact that we are His Son. Being a part of the household of God means that there will be people, there will be brothers in Christ who are given the opportunity and the position of authority to speak such exhortations. We need to humbly receive them and even submit to them because they have been given the divine, divine authority to do so. And that's exactly what you see here in these exhortations as well. Not only are they given with gentleness, but they're given with authority. When you, when you see uh, instructions there in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That word instructions there in the ESV is it's quite a conundrum to the best of scholars. It's very rare. It's a little bit of a hybrid of two or three words that have been combined together. Some translation says commands. I think that the ESV probably gets it the best right. I don't know if they get it right right, but they do the best job at translating it as instructions, but it's a, it's a rare term and it, and it has this hybrid meaning of order and authority. And, and I think that Paul maybe makes up a word. You know, us and Dylan, we make up words quite often. Um, I think Paul makes up a word here to talk about the orderliness of the Christian life, but also the authority in which he speaks to the orderliness of the Christian life as well. And actually, you see how he, how he spells out this authority. We gave it to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We gave it to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Himself, has made us the, made us the mouthpieces. And we have given you these instructions so that you might pursue holiness. And there, there's something to that. I think that the, the preface of our Book of Church Order, I know I've referenced this, this a number of times in sermons and in teaching opportunities, but the preface to the Book of Church Order reminds us that Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Those are His three offices. 
As prophet, He is the Word that became flesh. He speaks the Word of God to us. As priest, not only does He lay down His life as the atonement, as the sacrifice for many, but He sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. As King, He rules over His church. And then the preface says that God being pleased to carry out these offices through the ministry of men, talking about your elders and your deacons, He has given them the instruction then to give to you. And the Lord Jesus gives the elders and and the deacons the authority to give these instructions to you because we do it through Him. And, And so you see that these These exhortations are given with divine authority and it helps us carry out, as you see at the beginning of verse 3, the will of God. And then there's a small little comma, your sanctification. You know, so often we ask those questions, well, what is the will of God for my life? The will of God for your life is your sanctification. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. Well, that doesn't tell me, Matt, who I'm supposed to marry or what college I'm supposed to go to or if I'm supposed to leave this job and go to my next job or if I'm supposed to start looking for other churches or if I'm supposed to exhort uh, one of my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it, it doesn't give me all these practical, these practical answers to all of my practical questions. Well, I don't think that's exactly what is being meant here by the Apostle Paul. Of course... When we're searching out the will of God, we have to ask ourselves, what's going to glorify Christ the most? What's going to promote holiness the most in my life? Those are very practical questions that we're supposed to ask. But the will of God is for you to become more holy. That is the will of God. And and so Paul says, if you were to jeopardize or, or water down the instructions that we have given you through the Lord Jesus Christ... You are standing in rejection, not to the words of men, but to the words of God. You know, he's already said that the Thessalonian believers are, are very good. At, are, they're, they're very good at, at receiving the Word of God. It's there in chapter 2, verse 13. They're very good at receiving the Word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the Word of men... But as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. And Paul's saying, if you do not do so, if you reject the Word that we preach, you are not rejecting the mere words of men, but you're rejecting the very words of God. That's what is mentioned there in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And so here's something that needs to be understood. That if we are to exhort one another, if we are to know the will of God, if we are to pursue holiness, pursue sanctification, which is the will of God, then underlining all of this means that we must know the Word of God. We must know the Word of God. And we must know the whole counsel of God. And we cannot round the edges... Nor, nor do we have to qualify the word. Yes, Paul, Paul speaks very tenderly, brotherly even. He speaks truth in love. As the Puritans might say, he speaks heavenly. He adds salt to his words. But we never, ever have to qualify 
what the Word of God says. You know, one of my greatest frustrations, my biggest frustrations, and I heard it from a well-respected minister. I, I've loved hearing this minister preach for years, and I, I purposely went to a, a sermon on homosexual identity within the church. He was preaching against this fad of being a quote-unquote gay Christian, assuming that gay identity and also a Christian identity. And I think probably for the first 15 minutes of the sermon, the sermon was about 42 minutes, 15 minutes of the sermon was qualifying statement after qualifying statement about how God loves homosexuals and how some of His closest family are homosexuals. And He doesn't say these things to be mean. And He doesn't say these things to be bigoted or narrow-minded. He doesn't say these things to offend you or your family or your friends. And, oh, I've got homosexual friends. And I've even got friends that claim this gay identity. And they're also Christians. And I wish they wouldn't. And I mean, he just goes on and on and on for 15 minutes. And I'm like, just, just preach the Word, brother. Uh, I mean, here is the truth of the Scriptures. Yes, we preach them in love, but we do not round the edges of God's Word. If we are going to exhort, if we are going to know the will of God, if we're going to pursue sanctification, we need to be a people who are of the Word, knowing the Word, adoring the Word, loving the Word. But you also notice, and I'm trying to speed up here a bit, because I know I'm way over time already. But you also notice that he, he begins to repeat these commands in verses 1 through 12. These exhortations that he gives, he gives maybe the definition or tells you what sin that you ought to abstain from. Take verse 3, for example, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then in the next couple of sentences, he begins to expound upon that, repeating, giving us repetition. And he knows what repetition does for the Christian life. He knows that it's a good teacher. He knows that it's a good teacher for probably three reasons I could think of. One, that we're pretty quick to forget, aren't we? As we sang this morning, and come thou found of every blessing, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we need the Lord by His Spirit and by His Word to take our hearts, to change it, to seal it. Seal it with a heavenly mindedness so that we might pursue Christ's likeness. Because we are quick to forget the ways of the Lord. We are distracted by all these things that the world has to offer. And of course, we know something about that wandering language from, from the sheep analogy that's all throughout the Scriptures. As sheep begin to eat, it's not this idea that they just walk away haphazardly and rejectingly of the shepherd. No, they're, they're eating here, and they're eating there, and they're eating over there, and they're eating over there, and then all of a sudden they look up and they go, oh, where's my shepherd? And they're lost, and they're undone. They're wandered far away from the flock. It is that idea that we find little patches of, 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 of cultural attractions that lead us two steps farther and five feet farther and then one mile farther and then all of a sudden we need the great shepherd to leave the 99 to, to seek out the one. So we, we forget often. So we need repetition. And then also there is a, a fight, a battle with sin within us. So we need repetition. 
We, we battle with the flesh. We're new creations in Christ. Here is the tension of the Christian life. We're, we're new creations in Christ, and yet we find ourselves still struggling with our sinfulness. And therefore, sometimes when we are in those places like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, where we are doing the very thing that we ought not to do, knowing what we ought to do and not doing what we ought, but sinning against God, we need to be reminded in that battle with the flesh when we fall on our faces time and time again of the Gospel. And we also have a a tendency to to get bored. And I, I struggle with this myself when we begin to hear the, the same story of the gospel over and, and over and, and, and over again, our mind goes, yeah, I've got that. Give me something deeper. Give me something better. Tell me something about an obscure minor prophet that I've never heard before. Don't preach the gospel of John to me one more time. But beloved, isn't that exactly what, what we actually need? We, we don't need to forget the basics. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, remember, of Jesus and His love. That is what we, that is what we need. We, we don't need to get bored with the basics. And repetition ensures that we are being reminded over and over and over again not to think, yeah, 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 I've heard that before but to take us even more deeply into the Gospel so that we might be drawn closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives these exhortations with repetition, and then finally he gives it with clarity. He gives it with clarity. He's saying very clearly, isn't he, that these exhortations are so that you might do more and more. Now understand that our salvation has nothing to do with the things that we do. I understand that we cannot earn our salvation by doing more and more. But as we are being sanctified, as we are being conformed more into the image of God's Holy Son, Jesus, the product product of that will be that our good works are increasing in our life. That our good works are increasing in our life. And and beloved, quite frankly, we should have a, a holy discontentment That is what John Calvin calls it, a a holy discontentment of good works that are being born in us. That we should not be content with our Christ-likeness, but we should always want more. We should not be content in the good deeds that we do for God's glory and God's honor, but we should want to do more. It should be our heart's desire to be sanctified because that's the will of God and our sanctification will always show itself in good works. Here's what uh, commentator Linsky said. When one compares how they once walked and how they now walk, the change is great indeed, thank God. Yet there is still room for more. There is room for still more of this blessed abundance of the holiness of life. The Thessalonians are to please God in still higher degrees some of them still having plain things in which they are behind, and all of them, and all of them wanting to continue their blessed advance. Praise God, we are new creations in Christ. That's what the commentator is saying. When we see how we once walked in our sin and now walk in the power of the gospel, we should thank God and praise Him for great indeed is the change. And yet there is room 
for still more of this blessed abundance of holy life. That is how we live a life that is pleasing to God. That is how we, we, we live a life, in verse 12, that walks properly before not only God, but before the outsiders, but before the world. What sets us apart from the world? Remember, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we ensure that we're not of the world? How do we make sure that we're ready for Christ's second coming when He comes like a thief in the night? It's that we're growing in Christ's likeness. It's that we have a holy discontentment of how we can be stale in our Christianity, but we're always seeking to love God more, to serve God more, and to praise God more. To be pleasing to God appeals to the gospel motive for the believers, Linsky continues. Their love for God in the Lord Jesus, and not the motive of the law or the fear of punishment, but their love for God is what motivates them to holy living. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this, your word. And Lord, we know that we were here in length this evening, but would you show us how we are to grow up in Christ's likeness, that the will of you, our Lord and Savior Jesus, our Heavenly Father, your will for us is for us to be sanctified, for us to grow in Christ's likeness, for us to, for us to do more good deeds for thy kingdom, thy glory, thy honor. And so, Father, would you uh, build up within us, uh, would you urge us by your Spirit uh, to, to pursue you more, to live a life that is pleasing to you more, to walk closer with thee uh, forever and ever. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.